Again, we're continuing on in our study of Ephesians and uh, significantly the first sentence of the book of Ephesians. And we will read that again uh, because it is certainly worth reading. You know, when you uh, teach through Ephesians, um, you sort of realize as you go through it again and again, there's a lot more depth to it than you sort of saw the time before and the time before that. Uh, it is such a deep and rich uh, book. And uh, <clears throat> I haven't outlined this before. I made the comment to Amber. I said, Amber, I think if I were to teach this again, I would spend more time on these first uh, verses or this first sentence, 3 through 14, because there is so much in here about what God is doing in salvation. Uh, it's pretty much summing up all redemptive history in one sentence. Uh, that is a lot. So let us read the Word of God together and let us give our attention to it. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ." to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who worked out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory." And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you give us attentive hearts and enlightened minds to hear the glories of your word so that we might grow in grace and in godliness, so that we might know You, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, I would ask that You'd help me to speak today, and may You get the glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, as I've said the past couple weeks, we've been looking at the role of the Godhead in salvation. And we've looked specifically... Uh, two weeks ago at the role of the Father, and then last week we looked at the role of the Son, and this week we look at the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we saw two weeks ago that the Father chooses, and this is not a choice based on what He sees in us, but it's His choice before the foundations of the world, before there was even creation, He had us in mind. And He did this to display His love, we're told, His grace and His affection to awaken those who are spiritually dead and ruled by passions and lust and following the devil. He chose us to be His children. And that's something significant, isn't it? 
You know, uh, one of the things as you study Ephesians, it talks a lot about adoption. And as you know, I, I'm a dad who had the privilege to adopt. It's a different reality when you adopt, and some of you have may have been through that. But one of the <clears throat> my recent counseling uh, conversations, uh, I have been talking with a young woman who doesn't understand what it means to be in Christ and to be adopted. She has come from a rough background, a family who did not love her. And one of the things I've talked to her about is what does it mean to be adopted? And other writers have talked about this, but often children who are adopted really catch this idea of what does it mean to be adopted in Christ. Because for an adopted child, they're chosen. They're brought into a family. They had nothing to do with that family. Usually they're taken out of a bad situation and, Lord willing, placed in a better situation. And for each of us, sometimes we really don't get our heads and our hearts around what God has done. He has literally pulled us out of some situation to be a part of His benevolent family. That is the good work of the Father. And notice we talked about that that adoption happens in Christ. It's not the Father's role alone. It is accompanied by the Son. And it's very necessary, Paul tells us, that we're adopted, we're chosen in Christ because we need Christ to cover us. He is the process of making us God's children in which we become His by giving us a new nature, by cleansing our trespasses and sins, by His blood in which He atones for our evil. We get all His goodness and His righteousness and He takes all our sinfulness and it gets placed upon us. And so we've looked at those two roles of the Father and of the Son. Last week I sort of talked about this issue of how do we know that we're God's chosen? How do we know that we're God's elect? And I think that's where uh, Paul was sort of going in verses 13 and 14. If this is true, Paul, that you, God has chosen us, and we believe, even though we haven't seen Christ, says the Ephesians, that we have been redeemed by His blood, we're believing your testimony, how do we know this is true? In other words, how do I know that I have been possessed by the Father and bought by Jesus' blood? Well, I believe He wants us to know that it is certain and true. And thus He gives us verses 13 and 14. But one other thing I want you to catch, and if you've got my notes in front of you, God wants to make the uncertain certain. And what do I mean by that? Well, He wants His children to know that they're theirs. You know, uh, we have hope. Hope got placed into our family. Hope never heard Amber's voice or my voice while she was in the womb. She heard different voices. And then after that, she got placed in a different family other than us for a season. And now she keeps hearing our voices. So one of the things in adoption that is very critical is that attachment, that bonding with the parents. And so one of the things Amber and I must consistently do is to show our affection, our love, our bonding to hope, to let her know that she's ours and that she is a part of us. I believe Scripture uh, talks to that because the Apostle Paul and uh, other writers of the New Testament 
consistently challenge us, consistently call the church to make sure that the uncertain is certain. I have a number of verses I'd like to share with you that God calls us to make sure that we're part of His family. Because God doesn't want anybody to be fooled, does He? And please hear me, that's loving. It would be unloving for it to just be assumed. It's loving to make sure it's true. Listen to these verses. In Romans chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, Unbelieving Israelites were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Later in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he writes, Let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And then in chapter 15, I preach to you the gospel by which you are saved, if you hold fast, unless you believed in vain. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves. If you see if you are holding to your faith, test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test? In Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we do not lose heart. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Colossians 1.21 and 20 through 23 says, You are estranged. Christ has reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless, provided that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews joins in and he says, Strive for peace, for holiness, without which no one will see, see the Lord. And Peter says, If you invoke as Father Him who judges each one impartially according to His deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile. And then lastly, John says in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, God teaches us through Paul and through these other writers, that true certainty is found only in one place, and that is God. He calls us, or all the writers, most of the writers of the New Testament, maybe Matthew, call us to question our salvation to make sure it's sure, to make sure we're trusting in the one true God. Now, why is that? Well, I would put before you that one of the main reasons that is is a little statement John Calvin said about our hearts. He said, our hearts are little idol-making factories. We like to put trust in everything and anything except God. And it is so easy for us to find assurance in some other thing outside of God. And what's sadly, though, is even those cisterns we put our hope in are broken cisterns. We later find out that they really don't meet our needs. A number of years ago, a Puritan pastor named Matthew Mead dealt with this issue within his church. It seemed as he was pastoring his church that there were many in there who thought they possessed saving graces, but as he looked at, looked at them as a man who had been taught in the Scriptures, he wondered if they might possibly instead be dead wood on the inside. And so he wrote a book... It was basically a series of sermons, and the book was entitled, The Almost Christian Discovered. The Almost Christian Discovered. In it, Meade sought 
to awaken dead souls that were well acquainted with the ways of God, yet inwardly they were distant from Him. And so with a surgeon's scalpel, Matthew Meads sort of started to work and dissect and to eradicate any false hopes that the people had. He brought to their attention this verse by Peter. It says in 1 Peter 4.18, If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And the other verse he used to sort of lay the foundation of this series was Mark chapter 12, verse 34, when Jesus said to one of the seekers who came to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What Mead was getting at was saying that there are some who are righteous that were scarcely saved. In other words, saved by the skin of their teeth, or as Jude says at the end of the book of Jude, saved from fire, almost that they were grasped right before they went into the fire. He also says there's some, there are hypocrites that are close to the kingdom of God, but they're not quite yet in it. He continues to say this, There are two things which arise from hence a very serious meditation of these passages. The one is how often a believer may miscarry, how low he may fall, and yet have true grace. The other is how far a hypocrite may go in the way of heaven and how high he may attain and yet not have grace. The saint may be cast down very near hell and yet shall never come there. And the hypocrite may be lifted up very near to heaven and yet never come there. The saint may almost perish and yet be saved eternally. The hypocrite may almost be saved and yet perish finally. For the saint at worst is really a believer and the hypocrite at best is really a sinner. And I believe what Mead was wanting to get at, and we're going to look a little bit more of his work a little later on, is he wanted his congregation to see, and what God, I believe, wants all of us to see, is that our foundation, our hope for salvation, is found solely in Jesus Christ. That's easy to say, but in living daily life and how we interact and what we believe in and our actions or how we go through life, we need to have this introspection. We also need to invite other people's introspection to see, am I really trusting in Christ? Am I really clinging to Him as my foundation of hope for eternal life? Well, what is God's recipe for security? Well, it can be summed up in a three-tier process which we have in our text today. And that is this, hearing, believing, and assurance. How do we know we're, we're saved? How do we know we're God's children? Well, the first thing we must have is we must hear the gospel. We must hear the gospel. Romans chapter 10 says this, How then will they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Brothers and sisters, for us to be saved, we must hear the gospel. We got to hear it. We got to hear that we're sinners. We have a problem. And the problem is with Almighty God, who we've rebelled against, and we need someone else, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, to cover our debt. 
And it's only by believing in Christ that we can have that hope of salvation. You see, hearing the message of Christ is essential. But let me bring up the questions. What about the child who perishes early in life? Or what about that person who is deaf and dumb or has a mental disease who may not be able to comprehend this? Well, I think the answer is well found in our confession of faith. If you want to look in there, I believe it's in the section on election. And I would respond as the same as the confession and same as what the Word of God teaches. God is very capable to do whatever He wants to do. And He is the one who changes the heart. And He can speak through a donkey. He can speak through dreams. He can reveal His gospel through angels. As, Jesus, or as the angels said to Joseph, you shall name, name Him Jesus, for He will save His people from all their sins. That is the gospel. So God can work in all those ways. We don't know what happens in the souls of those individuals, and we trust that God would work. But ultimately, the most common and the normal mode of operation, the normal mode of salvation is you and I must hear the gospel. And so that behooves us that if we have people in our life, family members, friends who are concerned about their salvation, how necessary it is for us to proclaim the gospel to them. That's what moves us to go to these distant lands and leave the comforts of America to go tell the gospel. Because we know if people are not hearing the gospel, they're not going to be saved. They must hear the gospel. But not only hearing is important, but what we hear is important. Paul says in Romans, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, actually not Paul, Jesus. Jesus says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat down the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, what we hear is important. Not only hearing the gospel, but hearing the truth of the gospel. There are many errors in life, but there's only one message of truth. And that's what Paul calls it. Did you see that in the text? The message of truth. It reveals man's true condition. It proclaims and advocates the only true way of escape. And it admonishes saved sinners to show true gratitude in their lives. That is why it's entitled, The Gospel of Your Salvation. But in order for it to be the gospel of your salvation, it must be believed. And that's where Paul leads us to next. Faith, believing in this true gospel. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing the message of Christ. Faith is not confirmed through sight, is it, dear friends? We walk by faith and not by sight. And Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have seen and have yet or have not seen and yet have believed. The writers of Hebrews tells us that the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So how do we know that our belief in Christ is true? How do we know we've really gotten this gospel message and it's been applied to our lives or we're just not making it up in our mind? 
Well, the third and final characteristic of this uh, assurance that God wants to give us is that of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us. It is put, he is put into us. And notice what Scripture tells us, a couple of things here in Ephesians. First, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. As many of you, I'm sure, know, a seal was a sign to provide security of the contents there within. We do it on envelopes, don't we? We seal it. Or another thing we do, we seal uh, orders of the court, correct? There's a stamp placed on it, right? You have to, it's a form of a seal. It's testifying that these are legitimate papers. We recently had to do this. We're filing our taxes, and it got rejected. And we wondered why, and we wanted to make sure the issue was Hope's uh, uh, social security number. And obviously we had a court order, but when we went up there, they said, uh, we don't want a copy. We want a verified copy that she was officially adopted by you. That seal means something. Paul tells us that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a way of saying that that forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for us, that, that choosing in love that the Father has placed on us, has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is the testimony, not only to ourselves, but to all around us, that we're God's. Remember that great verse? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your whole body. We have been purchased. That is the stamp that we are His. And not only is it the stamp... As I just said, we become now, He lives within us. We become His temple. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, to guarantee our inheritance, He is the deposit. What is a deposit? Well, we're probably going to have to do it eventually one of these days when we buy a new car. Or if you guys buy a house, it's a deposit, right? You're saying, I'm good to continue paying on this thing. And the bank looks at you and sort of checks you out and says, okay, are you good enough? Do you have the records? Do you have the credit score? Whatever it is to verify that it's true. God says that the Holy Spirit is our deposit. It's our assurance that all these promises God has given us here in Ephesians or throughout Scripture or where Paul says he's given us every spiritual blessing, He's the deposit saying, we're His, and all these things are going to come true. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, His presence in our life is itself God's assurance that every spiritual blessing will be ours. More than that, this down payment is the first installment of the final consummation of the blessings we will experience in the resurrection. That is good news. In fact, that's glorious news. And not only does this Spirit seal us, not only is it a deposit of God's work, it also testifies that we're children of God. Paul says in the book of Romans, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons in which we cry out, Abba, which means Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ. So, to answer the question, how do we know if we're God's children? We know after hearing and believing in the gospel that the Holy Spirit bears witness 
with our own spirit that we are God's beloved chosen children. We are His. We belong to Him. Well, this morning you may be asking the question, well, how do you grow in this knowledge? Maybe you're struggling and wonder, how do I know if I'm God's children or God's child? I'm sorry. Well, let me give you five ways uh, the beloved pastor Matthew Mead said and shared how we grow in this assurance that we're God's. And spoken like only a Puritan could say, they pierce to the heart. He suggests the first one is that we do not place our hope of salvation in a form of godliness as if it would confer grace. And I've said this in some of the earlier sermons. Reading our Bibles, going to church, doing good works, prayer, baptism, all those things are good and all those things should be done if a life transformed. But they are not the means of salvation. Only God is. Meek goes on to flip this and he says that if you are belong to the Holy Spirit, if you have been sealed with Him, you will have a life characterized by godliness. As the Apostle John said, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. One of the clear testimonies of a life transformed is we do do those things. We do spend time in God's Word. And if you're living your life daily and you're not spending time in God's Word, perhaps you need to ask, why am I not spending time in God's Word? Why would I not want to read my Father's writings to me? His love letter to me. His words of instruction to me. Those are things the Father wants us to know. You see, for the child of God, if our assurance gets shaken, it's often due to sin or guilt. But when we're spending time, we're doing the works of godliness, it builds assurance in us. It builds trust in our heart that we belong to God Almighty. A third thing Mead says to grow in our assurance is that we must believe that the afterlife, heaven and hell, are the greatest realities. Some would say this is an eternal perspective. If one is a child of God, they think about their eternal home. They prepare themselves for their eternal home. They anticipate coming to their eternal home, and they long for their eternal home. As Mead says, though they thought, or I'm sorry, thought they are spiritual and out of the view of sense, yet they are real and within the view of faith. Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, he says, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The question, brothers and sisters, we must ask ourselves is if we have a life transformed by God, we should long for those eternal realities. You know, uh, this cuts, doesn't it? All of us have different desires that we want to see fulfilled in this world down here. I'll, I'll be honest with you. One of them, I hope one day, is to have a large home. That's one of Doug's desires. I want to have a large, beautiful home where my family can come in. That's been a struggle all my life. And why is that? Well, I want to provide. I want to give security for my family. That's not a bad thing. But if I'm placing all my hope in that, and not placing my hope that all my children come with me to my eternal home, the home of my father where there's room upon room upon room, then I've missed the greatest. I've settled for something less, and I'm missing what God really wants from me. 
I'm missing that important reality of heaven and how special it is. I believe that's what Mead's getting at in our heart is that we need to do introspection in there. A fourth thing he says is set a high value on your soul. What we lightly prize, we easily part with. Consider Esau, Mead says, he sold his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. He was hungry and he gave up his birthright just so his belly would be full one day. What, what will we sell our full soul for? What are we investing in? Is it a career? Is it a home? Is it a rank? Is it a lifestyle? Is it an image? Is it a lineage? All these things we can invest in, but they pale in comparison to investing our soul in God. If we invest our soul in God, we get every spiritual blessing. And the Father wants to give us good gifts. So often, I think a fear many people have is if I, I put our hope in God and I allow Him to really have control of myself or my life, then these desires I have, He won't give them to me. He's going to take them away from me. I had that fear. I thought if I became a Christian, I'd have to lay my funny bone up on the altar. You know, I could never smile, never drink beer, never do any of those things. But God has continued to show me all those good and gracious gifts are His in Christ. He wants us to have those blessings. And then lastly, uh, Mead says, meditate on the strictness and the suddenness of that judgment day through which we must pass into everlasting state. Brothers and sisters, none of us uh, know that our final day until it happens. And all of us must pass through that state of death in order to get to eternal life. That knowledge that one day that could happen just like this or on the drive home or even now at the end of this worship service, it calls us to inspect our lives and to really think, am I sure I'm God's? And it's that fear that healthy fear of God and that healthy fear that that moment could come at any time, it purges us from not being a child of God. In fact, it's a good thing that that fear is in us. David wrote, The fear of God is pure. It is enduring forever. And in Psalm 130, he wrote, It is the forgiveness of the Lord that... I'm sorry, is the... I said that backwards. It is the forgiveness that the Lord gives that we fear Him and we make sure that we are in Him. In other words, forgiveness isn't cheap, is it? It came with a cost. Well, I believe these five biblical steps, Mead says, will help us to grow into certainty that we are God's children. And perhaps many of them you check mark, yes, I'm doing that. But maybe there was one or two you said, you know, I could grow in that area. I would encourage you to meditate on them and think on them. Because you know what happens when we do do that? when we do consider the strictness and suddenness of the day of judgment, that we consider the importance of our soul, that we consider the importance of the inheritance that is given to us, what happens is we do what Paul does here in the book of Ephesians. What does Paul do? He praises God's glory. Look with me in Ephesians. Three times Paul gives God glory. In verse 6 he says, "...to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves." Verse 12, he writes, We who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And then lastly, in verse 14, 
the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. You see, when, when, when Paul looks at all that God has done for us, how the Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit applies this redemption and this inheritance that will be ours, you cannot help but praise God. In fact, notice what Paul does right after this. He breaks out in prayer and in praise and in poetry of our great God. And the question is, if he did that, what should be our response? And if our heart is not moved, Lord, please do a work in us so that I will be moved. Stir my affection afresh so that I see how good you are. You know, uh, last night uh, I was working on this sermon and I went to one of the websites and uh, some of the folks I love to read the most are the Puritans. And they had a little statements about different Puritans and I don't know why, but my eyes just sort of captured on this one guy, I even forget his name. But it said of him, he, he dealt so much with illness in his life. But on his, on his uh, last illness that finally took his life, he made this statement to the people around him of how much he was enjoying God's blessedness being with him and how sweet it was to him. It was almost as if the Father was holding his hand at that very moment. That is an intimacy I hope one day to attain. That I would, would, would love God in that type of passion and commitment and trust in Him and His good graces. I think that's what God wants to produce in us. And as we look at the book of Ephesians, I hope it would produce that in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this section. And I would pray today that as each of us go home, we would think about uh, these eternal matters, that we would make sure we're, we're in, in You, Christ. And Lord, we thank You for that great assurance You do give us. Lord, I would ask that none of us tread upon that lightly. Lord, it is easy to do. And Father, I ask that you forgive me and forgive those who are here who, where we have tread lightly on the work of your, you, Holy Spirit, in producing in us assurance. And Lord, I would pray that you would help us to sift our desires and our wants and longings. May we get them in the right order for heaven is our greatest longing, and to be with you, Jesus, is our greatest treasure. Lord, I ask that you would produce those things in us, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.